what we saw in Balotnaya. Navalny um, is not exactly an outsider. Сочи стартует церемония. Now it's time to take a look back and talk about what we've learned. Hello from our broadcast headquarters in Prague and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFRL. Joining me here in the studio is longtime co-host Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and author of the forthcoming book, The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. Welcome, Mark. Hi there, Brian. So we started this journey in response to the castling and to, to Vladimir Putin's return to the Kremlin for a third term way back in late 2011, early 2012. And we're wrapping it up as Putin begins or prepares to begin his fourth term. What have we learned about Russia in this time period? What surprised you? What surprised you? Well, it's interesting because in preparation for this, I, I, I went and looked back. Because back in, back in the day, 2011-2012, I was writing a regular column for the long-since-defunct Moscow, Moscow News. May it rest in peace. Uh, and so I thought, okay, let me go and have a look at my columns. And it's quite interesting that, I mean... Some things clearly one, one got wrong, some things we got right, and we'll be talking about that later on in the, in the podcast. But the, but the interesting thing that strikes me is actually looking back, not as much as surprising as now seems it. I think in a way because precisely things have kicked up a certain gear, and be, particularly because of the intensely sharpening international competition... Mm -hmm. Um, we perhaps easily think that, in fact, that the, the domestic situation ch has changed dramatically, whereas I don't think it has. This is, this is, this is sort of the, what surprised me lo lo looking back. So I think what, what we've learned is, first of all, that um, the Putin regime does not now change much. It changes tactics. It sometimes tweaks its strategy, but in essence... The contours were pretty much visible in 2011-2012. Secondly, though, is that actually, despite the fact that there has been a phenomenal pushback against the kind of forces that were behind Balotnaya, they have not gone away. I mean, actually, if one looks at the stories today, I mean, you know, the, the aftermath of the appalling fire in, 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 mm -hmm. in the shopping centre in Kemerova, um, the protests um, closer to Moscow about uh, sort of a huge rubbish heap. The children and, uh, that breathe exactly. toxic air from Actually, it is clear that, that civil society is still strikingly, vividly strong, that there are still absolutely fundamental divisions within the elite, but what you have at the moment is sort of acting as this kind of spider-like thing that sort of embraces the rest and holds everything from the elite to the country together mm -hmm. is 
Putin and a certain kind of power structure. But the the cracks within that power structure, which were visible in 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. are still very visible today. I mean, I I also went back to, to look at what I was writing and saying back in that time period. And I remember thinking of Russia in late 2011 as an example that we've seen before. We've seen in Chile. We've seen in, in, in South Korea. We've seen in Taiwan. Um, it fits into classical political development theory. Um, the idea of the revolution of rising expectations and relative deprivation. It's that when living standards get better is the most dangerous time for an authoritarian regime because people, after having attained a certain level of material comfort, reach for higher goals, democracy, pluralism, human rights, and things like that. That is one thing I thought I saw happening in 2011. Um, I also thought I saw the flip side of the revolution arising expectations, relative deprivation. We also, at that time, began to see the economy lose some steam and living standards, in a relative sense, to go down. And again, this made it an extra dangerous time for the regime because people are not measuring their economic well-being against where they were five years ago, but where they expect to keep, you know, keep being five years hence, uh, because they expect their their living standards to continue to rise. So I thought Russia was falling into the classic scheme of political development theory. Again, it's a movie we've seen before. We've seen it, like I said, in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Chile. Um, that. Apparently, unless we need to really broaden the aperture here look and, and, and say we're just seeing a snapshot of this in the last seven years this podcast has been in existence, that appears not to have been the case in Russia. And this goes back to an old debate I remember from graduate school, you know, about the Soviet Union. Is, is, it, is it sui generis? Is it unique? Um, is it a case all by itself? Um, what, what, how, how do you, how do you see this, Mark? Do you see Russia fitting into the northern, the, the patterns that social scientists expect to see countries fit into, or, or, or is it something that has to be interpreted in, a, in an entirely different way than the way we've been doing it? Well, I think I've probably given you temptation at first and said, and this is why one should never listen to social scientists with theories. Um, but no, I mean, but, 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 but. So essentially, I'm says still a historian. The profe- says the professor. <laughs> the historian. He likes to think of himself. No, but joking apart, I mean, I think that, again, we, we have to realise that this is something that does not take place quickly, neatly, or always in, in, in a, in in a, a single direction. Fashion, exactly. Right. You know, two steps forward and one step back and all that. We are looking very much on a micro scale at a macro process. And even the the changes that take place, one has to wonder how many how many false starts are there before the one that actually pushes things forward. Particularly in the context of and and, and here, you know, I'll 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 see your political theorist and I'll raise you one Lenin. Um you know <laughs> one of the things he always said um, you know, and, and I think one, one, one can pick many, many flaws um, in, in Lenin's thinking, but he did understand power quite well, is that a key precondition for a successful revolution is, is what he called a critical absence of will on behalf of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is one of the key things that has been absent so far. This is why what we have been seeing... The will hasn't been absent. The, the, the lack of will has been absent. Well, exactly. I mean, there has not been that particular precondition. So this is why this has been 1905, not 1917. Because mm-hmm. um, actually, authoritarian regimes do not tend to get toppled. Mm-hmm. They tend to actually topple themselves or step out or just you know, give up. 
Um, now, this is, this is not a regime which is yet anywhere near that point. This is a regime which, which has its own Stalipins mm-hmm. ready to, to, to step in and, and, and deal with, with the crisis. So, but, but that does not, I think, invalidate the overall notion of, of Russia's trajectory. I mean, you, you know, we, we've had this conversation before, you know, that ultimately I do see Russia as being part of a European um, mm-hmm. spectrum. It, it's, 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 it's on a one, far exactly, extreme but, of that but, spectrum. But, but, but someone yeah. has to be at the, the extreme of any, any spectrum. Um, and, and to link this with the whole notion of whether or not sort of Russia is unique, I don't. I mean, I think, look, yes, Russia has a, a variety of very particular factors conditioning it. Mm-hmm. The fact of, if nothing else, is its huge size, its history, its location as a kind of crossroads of all kind of sort of cultural connections, which also historically has meant invasion routes. Um, but that's a little bit like saying, well, well, Britain is in a unique situation as an island, as the cradle of the Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution, etc. All of this is true. And in the short term, all of this kind of creates particular idioms for the overall process being similar. I think otherwise we end up giving... Uh, weight to a certain kind of orientalism. I, I would agree with that. And actually, one of the things that's been consistent since these debates were happening about the Soviet Union when it, way way back when I was a, a student a long time ago um, was, was, was that I didn't think the Soviet Union was so unique. And I did think I was trained as a comparativist in the, in the comparativist tradition of political science. And I always believe that you can, you can understand this in the context, which is, again, why I was pushing the, 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 the Ted Gurr, Why Men Rebel thesis um, on Russia back in 2011, when I thought I saw a, a lot of kind of stars aligning that spelled, I mean, God, I remember writing blogs with titles like why the Kremlin is losing, why Navalny is winning. You know, I thought the tectonic plates were shifting beneath this regime and it was over. But I think you hit the thing that actually, in, in, in citing Lenin, of all people, will. Putin has surprised us with his will. In his in domestic power, by sheer force of will, he overcame what should have been something that would have brought this regime down. I would imagine, or, or no? Well, I mean, again, it's this. I mean, this Balotnaya was never going to sweep away the regime. What Balotnaya could have done is precisely open up these fault lines within the elite that might have made the basically mm. the regime implode or, or collapse. Mm. Well, that's um, what I, that's it, of course. So, what so I mean, it. but this is it. But I'm saying, I mean, it's worth I think disaggregating that because when it comes down to it, yes, I mean that is 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 where will came in. Um, firstly, actually, a certain amount of self-indulgence and amateurism on the part of the protesters, mm-hmm. however much one can also praise their, their bravery and their ingenuity. Secondly, the fact that this was really very specific to, to Moscow and St. Petersburg in particular classes mm-hmm. or whatever. They hadn't had a chance to, again, you know, in 1905, ironically enough, there was there had been much more of a backstory of revolutionary agitation, which admittedly had, had done really rather badly in the countryside when they went to the people there. Right. But in, in the towns, it actually had been quite effective. Mm-hmm. There were trade union movements that were, some of which were run by the police, but that's another matter. Um, but, you know, the, 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 there had been a lot more agitation. Balotnaya was more as having to kind of construct mm-hmm. itself out of mm-hmm. nothing. So, you know, credit where it's due. But the, but the other thing is precisely that the elite at that point did not see either the need or the possibility for some kind of real uh, shift of, of mm-hmm. system. Putin could still both offer them enough, mm-hmm. but at the same time scare the bejesus out of them enough. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, when, when one looks at it, I mean, Russia fell 
because of a whole variety of reasons, but particularly it fell when it did fall. You mean Tsarist Russia? Tsarist Russia, right? Because of World War One, because right. of the massive cataclysmic blow. Um, you know, if it hadn't been for World War One, and I would suggest also for the assassination of Stalin. Um, actually, who, who knows? Japanese War. Well, the Russo-Japanese War gave it 1905. Mm -hmm. But after 1905, you know, had Stalin had longer, had there not been World War One, now again, ultimately Tsarist Russia would have collapsed or just become a constitutional monarchy, sure. But it wouldn't necessarily have collapsed the way it did and when it did. Yeah. Now, Putin has, as ever, been preternaturally lucky. Right. Um, and, and has not had to... to cope with anything more. I mean, the very fact that we think of things like the, the Kursk disaster when, when the submarine, the submariners died basically because the Russians were too bloody-minded to let foreigners, particularly the Royal Navy, help them out. Right. Or if we look now at what, what's happening um, in Kemerovo, where we've even had people sort of chanting, Putin resign. Mm -hmm. These are all significant, but these are essentially local-specific, and they're not things that are going to likely... Uh, generate a nationwide movement. Well, I, I noted on yesterday's morning vertical in the and the on my mind section. I noted Kemerovo and of the of the um, of the, the situation in the, the, the Moscow suburb where the protests over the over the children breathing the from the from the from the waste dump. One of the signs of Kemerovo struck me. It said corruption kills, which basically sums it up there. Now, once people start making that connection, because I always thought we've talked about this in the podcast that what's truly the Achilles heel of this regime is not the Moscow and Petersburg-based traditional opposition. It's not even Navalny, although Navalny is pushing this button really important. The, 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 when they connect the fact that this is a kleptocratic corrupt regime and as a result, children are dying, that, that's their Achilles heel. Is Kemerovo, can Kemerovo be a flashpoint? Well, it might be, except that unfortunately this is a regime that well understands the, the risks of this. And... You know, I know for a fact that the FSB, for example, spent a lot of time, as the KGB did before it, analysing what happened in Poland mm -hmm. around the Gdansk shipyards and the rise of solidarity, precisely to almost try and kind of create some sort of schema for how these things become national phenomena and obviously mm -hmm. how we stop them from being so. So we'll wait and see. I agree with you completely that corruption is the most crucial um, factor that can play against this regime, not least because it goes, it crosses regions, it crosses classes, everyone. The trouble is, is the lack of... is necessary for this regime. This regime can't exist without corruption. Sure, but the point is, at the moment, the trouble is, in a way, it's a question of the capacity to have optimism. Mm -hmm. Do you think that anything can change? If enough Russians... I mean, don't. And I think at the moment, many don't. They just regard it as, it's awful, we will protest, um, we want to scalp... We want, you know, whether it's a Mantulev mm. uh, who, who right. know, handled this very badly um, or, or whether it's just local fire inspectors or whatever. But, you know, seeing it in those terms rather than systemic terms. Right. We will see. I mean, look, again, this is the thing. It's, 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 it's like it's a little bit like and I mean, since since I've quoted Lenin, uh, what could be better but throwing the IRA, the Irish <laughs> Republican Army terrorist movement, who after their failed attempt to assassinate Margaret Thatcher said, you have to be lucky every time. We only have to be lucky once. Mm -hmm. And that is the, sort of the approach of any assassin or terrorist. Well, likewise, in this regime, you know, ironically enough, they have to cope with it every time. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to respond to it every time. And, and the, because it is so deeply corrupt and kleptocratic and, frankly, in many ways, deeply inefficient, there will continue to be 
Kemerovos mm-hmm. and Kursks and St. Petersburg bombings and, and whatever else. And, you know, this time they, they deal with it, next time they deal with it. At some point, one of these things will happen to come at the right, right. moment that maybe it's, 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 well, Putin is already distracted, maybe it's in too close proximity to something, or whatever it is. But at some point, something will act as, as the catalyst. Well, it's like you, you brought this up weeks ago when we were talking about the, the Wagner uh, incident in Syria. And you said, you know, this may turn out to be something, the, 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 the deaths of Russian servicemen in Syria that, that, that the Kremlin claims aren't there could turn out to be something like the Afghan war was when you, when you said it's because the, the Afghan war didn't bring, as you put out, pointed out correctly, did not bring down the Soviet regime. But it came one of these flashpoints where they're, if they're lying about that, what else are they lying Fine. about? Aren't they lying about everything? You mentioned hope. And that provides me a nice segue, too. Um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about Navalny. Um, do you think we've given him too much attention? No, I don't think so. I think for several reasons. One is that he matters. And the interesting thing is, as far as the Kremlin is concerned, he clearly matters. So, in a way, we, we, we have to take our lead, lead from them. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, look, he, he represents a particular phenomenon. We don't know if it will be Navalny who actually manages to be the sort of the, the galvanizer in chief mm-hmm. who actually brings together all, all these various forces and particularly the, the sort of the, the visceral shared dislike of corruption um, but it will be it will be someone and at the moment when we're talking about Navalny we're not just talking about one guy we're in a way we're using him as a synecdoche as a way of exploring this particular wing of the whole mm. protest movement no, I mean, I, I mean, I, again, I, I have focused a lot on Navalny and often wondered myself whether I was giving him too much attention, but I honestly don't think I can. I mean, one thing that struck me, I mean, we, I, um, I believe it was Arkady Ostrovsky that said this, and I thought it was brilliant. I said, you know, what's the message Navalny's giving to the Russian people? And he said, it's yes, we can. Yes, we, you know, they say we can't be as good as the Europeans. Yes, we can. We can have a clean... And I think that does, I mean, hope, even in Russia... <laughs> Hope resonates, uh, one would think. And I think he is delivering a message, uh, an optimistic message of hope that he delivers very, very charismatically. But again, another word you said earlier, will. Navalny certainly does have political will. And this, I don't know whether this will, is enough to counter Putin's political will. Um, This is going to be a very interesting battle of wills going forward. And finally, the regions. He has established a network in the regions, and that matters. And we've seen this since, so it's, almost, it's more than a year, you know, March 26th of last year, so a year and two days ago, you know, Navalny shocked everybody with the, with the protests he was able to, to, to organize in regions across, across Russia. So you, you, would, you would agree that this is something we're going to be, that this battle between the Kremlin and Navalny is something that's going to continue? Yeah, and, I, and again, this very much explains why, having toyed with the idea of giving him a platform originally, um, the Kremlin has since made sure that he you know, couldn't stand in the elections, wouldn't stand in the elections, has been squeezed out of as many media a- avenues as possible. I mean, if I can go even one further than, than quoting the IRA, let, let's <laughs> good, move good, good to guy, fascist no, Italian prosecutors. <laughs> um, when fascist w- Italian prosecutors or prosecutors that prosecute fascists? No, 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 no fascists. Fascist, actual fascists. fascists. Uh-huh. Um, when, when they were sentencing the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci, what they said was, you know, we must stop this brain from thinking for, I can't remember, I think it was 30 years, whatever. Mm. Well, I mean, in Navalny's case, they're no doubt saying, we must stop this voice from speaking. Mm-hmm. And, and But the point is, yes, they can do that to Navalny. They can silence him. They can put him in house arrest. They can kill him. 
but the processes that Navalny represents mm-hmm. and exactly this issue of moving beyond Moscow and Peter into the regions, moving beyond the, the comfort zone of a traditional grumbling intelligentsia um, to the, the crumbling housing blocks in the provinces mm-hmm. and so forth. That is not something that is likely to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the authorities will do everything they can to, to, to slow it, to break the bonds of solidarity that are beginning to form, which is historically one of the problems mm-hmm. for Russia, is this lack of solidarity between umpteen different groups right. who all feel unhappy, but in a way they feel their answer to that unhappiness is purely to address their own issues the and, 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 and devil right. take the rest. So, yes, I think, I think this, this is going to be important, whether or not it's actually Navalny himself who is still the figure that we're talking about. And I would also add, it's long been my belief, there's circumstantial evidence to support this, but not much more, that that Navalny does have support on the inside, um, and that there are those who would like to have an insurance policy for this man. Um, And uh, one other thing also you make of this, Navalny's been kind of quiet since the elections. We haven't heard much from him. What do you make of that? I mean, I don't really know, but I imagine it's in part because they're, well... Firstly, regrouping looking, and figuring out, regrouping and figuring out exactly thinking what kind of strategy. Because anyway, now you have to have a strategy that may well have to last up to six years. Yeah, and yet also has to be nimble enough to cope with. Firstly, sort of again, if if there happens to be something that triggers some kind of protests, mass protests between now and then, mm-hmm. but also nimble enough to cope with the fact that in you know three years' time, maybe Putin's going to say, "Oh, and here's my new successor." <laughs> so I think one way or the other, they, they actually have, yeah. have, have quite a task. And they have to do that with a degree of operational security. You mean here's my new successor and his name is Alexei Navalny? No, no, okay. no. I was no, say exactly, but his name is someone we don't say. Okay, but okay. The point okay. is, you can't just sort of assume that you're going to be up against Putin. Right. You're going to be up against the Putin system. And he's always been playing, to his credit, playing a long game. Mm-hmm. And I've always assumed, like you know, like it's been said, you don't seize power in Russia, you pick it up, is the way I prefer to put what the, the sentiment you expressed earlier today. Uh, you pick it up when there's a lack of will or a lack of ability at the, at the top. Navalny's positioning himself to pick that power up when it falls, I think. He's playing that long game right now. And I think, I, I think, I mean, and actually, I do think he as an individual is important because of his social media savvy, because of his charisma, because of the intelligence which, which, with which he approaches this, which we haven't seen from probably any Russian opposition leader in, in, in a long humor. time. And humor. I mean, that, humor. that yeah. actually is also yeah. an important point. Another thing, and again, I'm glad you said will, because will is so, it is so important in each one of these things, and it, it's certainly played a role in foreign affairs. Going back to 2011, neither of us, I think, would have expected to see Russia where it is in foreign affairs right now, whether we're talking about the 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 the, the annexation of Crimea, the invasion of the Donbass, a war in Ukraine, um, whether we're talking about the intervention in Syria, which has kind of upended Western policy there and turned Russia into the kind of the go-to player there right now. Why is Russia able to punch above its weight in foreign affairs? Is this just a question of will? Because this is something that did surprise me. They've punched above their weight in foreign affairs consistently over the time that this podcast has been on the air. Well, it's, it's, I think I would say it's a combination of will, a, a capacity and a willingness to commit resources to it, but also a capacity and a willingness to take risks and accept long-term costs. I mean, to, to quickly unpack those, I mean, absolutely, the, the, the Russians, well, I've, sort of, I've been t- sort of mentioning this, the notion of a will gap, like mm. with a missile gap and so forth. You know, the, the Russians have sensed that is their strategic advantage, that basically they are willing to be more scrappy, more aggressive, they're, you know, 
the Joe Pesci's of, of the geopolitical arena. And, and that actually does buy them a certain amount of, of, of leverage. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a country with a GDP less than the state of New York or California. Texas, the less than the combined market capitalization of Google, Microsoft, and Apple. I mean, this is not, by, by if you look at the normal matrices, this should not be a great power that's able yeah, to upend Western policy, but yet it is. I mean, yet it is. Look at North Korea. I mean, you know, if you actually want something that is an even further sort of stark example, <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is actually, you know, Putin is on that spectrum. But Putin, but Russia's not North Korea. Exactly. Russia's a global player. North Korea's not. Well, North Korea is not a global player, except, of course, that a lot of global powers are putting a lot of thought and effort into wondering what the hell to do with North Korea. And that is, that is the essence of Putin's success in foreign relations. It's not actually everyone is saying wow, the Russians, we need to have the Russians at the table because they're going to be so useful and productive and helpful. It's, what on earth do we do about this problem called Moscow? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that has, has, has been his brilliance. Now, yeah, absolutely, Russia is not North Korea. But nonetheless, there is a point in which countries that are willing to challenge the rules, if need be, break the rules, get in pe- other countries' faces. I mean, it's all very well saying it, it has, um, you know, that its, its economy is smaller than that of, sort of Google and co. But, well, actually... We, Google, we, Microsoft, we, and Apple combined. We can, we can now <laughs> actually also bring... You know, who else can, can, can one quote next but Stalin? Uh, you know, when he asked... How, how many, many divisions does Google have? Precisely. In this case, you know, it, 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 the, the point is there are many, many other actors that are not willing because we, because we want to live nice lives. We want to have working infrastructures and health services and not have, you know, 30% of our budget you know, devoted to security. And on that Stalin security. quote, the Vatican, I believe, had the last laugh on that. It took a while. Well, <laughs> this is exactly what we find, I, I would suggest, with, with Putin. And again, it's interesting with saying this right after this massive west-wide coordinated campaign of expulsions of Russian quote-unquote diplomats, mm-hmm. um, which is absolutely unprecedented. And I don't want to kind of overplay it. I mean, it's you not going to suddenly change it. You were the British response, but now you the, think this is... The British response was rather depressingly tepid. It, <laughs> it, 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 it was a rather cool cup of tea. Um, but no, I think but precisely now that we suddenly have something that we have not seen in any of these incidents before, which is international solidarity, meaningful international solidarity, and also on a really large scale, I think... What what we're beginning to see is precisely all these chickens coming home to roost. Um, that you know, you, you can think you can do it to an line, extent. Then. Yeah, I think it, it was that kind of you know again to use a cliche you know straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. You know, in and of itself, it but was yet not a Germany, massive. Germany importance. approved Nord Stream, as we are all paying attention to these expulsions, which I agree mm-hmm. with you are important. But while that was going on, and I talked about this in this morning's Daily Vertical, Germany just approved the portion of Nord Stream that goes through Germany's territorial waters. Their maritime authority approved this. Um, and funny, there weren't the big headlines about mm-hmm. this, right? But that's important. I mean, I was watching I was watching Michael Carpenter, the former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense on the BBC yesterday, um, sharp as usual, um, saying basically this is, it sends an important message about transatlantic solidarity, a very important message. But... Russia's going to continue behaving as it behaves until the costs outweigh the benefits. And for the costs outweigh the benefits, we need things like financial sanctions. We need serious financial sanctions, full blocking sanctions of the type you have in Iran, um, s- serious defense sector sanctions, and yes, f- serious energy sanctions. And this shows that, you know, a pretty important Western country is ready to go on with business as usual here. Well, except that do we really want to push the Putin regime into the tightest of corners possible? 
I mean, this notion... That old metaphor that, of the rat from the biography. <laughs> this, this, this notion that, in fact, what we absolutely need to do is basically try and isolate... I mean, apart from the fact, it's actually going to be really hard to do that. Yeah. And particularly, you know, when one looks at energy sanctions, there is a considerable European reluctance because actually a kind of a, a heavy subtext of that is, no, 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 buy your, buy your energy from America. But more broadly... Yeah, but I don't think it's about that. Really. But more broadly, it's no, I mean, really I, I think a lot that. of this is about will. I mean, this is why I, I, I wrote this piece that's in, in, in foreign policy. Yeah, I saw it. That, that basically says, well, we need to actually have a clearer sense of, of what it is that we want to do. Now, actually, if, if, if we want to have a deterrent d- demonstration of will... Um, yeah, that that involves a lot of things, and and, I, and personally, for what it's worth, I mean, I I'm, I'm disappointed that Germany did approve Nord Stream, though there are other countries that are probably rather more ballsy who still have to mm. a- approve this. So we we can't assume it's a it's a done deal, but the the point is that in fact, while yes, more could be done, of course, but nonetheless, the point is that f- we we have seen something happen which we have never seen before. Mm-hmm. Which is precisely a, a non-kinetic, not you know, not an invasion or whatever, um, a, a, a very egregious, what's the word, brazen, seems to be the word of the day, um, you know, attack on on British soil, which actually has created this 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 backlash from Canada to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that is a big deal, and I think that demonstrates to the risks in the Putin strategy. You can punch above your weight for a while, mm-hmm. but what do you actually gain from it, except that kind of short-term endorphin rush, rush of feeling that you're being treated as a big power? And secondly, at what point do you actually become more of a, more of a problem than you intended mm-hmm. for everyone around you? So they just like they miscalculated on Crimea. They didn't really anticipate the reaction that that, that they thought they were going to have Georgia part two. They 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 got more than they bargained for here. But at the end of the day, we're just talking about expulsions. We're just talking about diplomatic expulsions that there's going to be a tit for tat for. Well, you say, you say just diplomatic expulsions. On one level, yeah, of course, you know, is 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 the Putin system going to grind to a halt no. because there are fewer spies around the world? No, of course not. But the point is, it's 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 a it's a demonstration of will. The the Russians got, and I mean, and I'm I, it's worth saying. I mean, I was, I was I was in Moscow the last couple of weeks after that first British round of expulsions, when it also frankly looked as if all Britain was going to get from its allies was thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, the sense I was getting from people I was talking to in Moscow was they were perfectly comfortable with that. They they had expected that would be would be the result. They, they, didn't they see gamed it out. They, they but they really I felt they were really signalling to me that they believed that that was going to be the end of it. Mm-hmm. That yeah, there there will be some more grumbling from London. Yes, oligarchs' planes will be being searched or something like that. Oh, wow, big deal. Um, but that actually that was it. So, I mean, I, I would be fascinated to know quite what was being said in the corridors mm. of oh, the foreign ministry and the presidential all. administration as this um, sort of rolling program of expulsions <laughs> happened. So don't, don't look at the actual impacts in mm-hmm. terms of practicalities. Look at what that says about mm-hmm. solidarity, will, and a general fed-upness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As Viestia called it, a flash mob, a global flash mob. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk uh, do before we go to the go to the second half is uh, the, the 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 former Soviet space. Um, we're seeing interesting dynamics here, and I, I talked about this in the Daily Vertical this week as well. Over the past week, we've seen you know a small demonstration in Belarus marking the hundredth anniversary of the nineteen eighteen Declaration of Independence. A much bigger demonstration in Chisinau marking the unification of Romania and Bessarabia in nineteen eighteen. But we're beginning to see in different ways, big and small, 
from the surprising resilience of the Ukrainian armed forces in the war in Ukraine to to places like Moldova and even Belarus, even though it's a small demonstration, there still are people pushing back on this, people pushing back on Russia's attempt to dominate the former Soviet space. Um, we've been focusing on Putin's skill at, at basically regathering what he considers to be the Russian lands, what I consider to be sovereign and independent states. Um, we've been focused less on the rebellion below the decks. Is time on Russia's side in the former Soviet space? I don't think so. I think whether each individual country embarks on a sort of reforming trajectory at all or quickly or whatever is one or thing. Or not at all. Indeed. But on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily play to Moscow. Moscow has a tendency to be able to kind of work better with authoritarians, but it also can, can actually suffer more blows from authoritarians. No, I mean, I, I think that when it comes down to it, if you want an empire, you better be willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Empires are not, um, you know, so particularly in the modern world, things from which you drain resources. The days where, where, where you would sort of go and take, take your slaves and your gold um, are, are, are long since gone. That's not how the, how the economy works. Actually, empires nowadays cost you money. Mm-hmm. You basically you have to, you know, if you look at the, the Warsaw Pact, mm-hmm. that was a drain on the Soviet Union yeah. in the main, mm-hmm. nothing else. Well, likewise, now you know, Russia wants to have its, for want of a better word, Warsaw Pact, or at least its Comic-Con. Um, but is not willing or able in the main to pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, every now and then it, it offers some deals, but then it tends to try and turn around and see actually how it can, can mm-hmm. twist more, more money out of them. So I think for all these reasons, again, Moscow is not offering carrots, only sticks. Mm-hmm. And there is actually obviously very large sticks. And even what's going on in, in Ukraine, although it's clearly a failure from Moscow's point of view in policy terms, it at least has the advantage of basically saying, you overtly turn against us, and, and we we can mess you up we badly. Can mess you up, yeah, and that's and and that is the essence of Putin's foreign policy. I mean, I always thought that the relationship with Belarus was just a, a very interesting bellwether in this because if you could, if you take all these, the Belarus is is the most amenable to being in a Russian in a Russian sphere of influence, and yet Lukashenko treats this relationship as transactional, where Putin sees it as imperial. And that that's the fundamental difference. And it looks, so Lukashenko, I guess, is is much more in the modern uh, view of empires, where if you want me to be in your empire, you have to pay me, where Moscow sees it in a different way. And if they, if they can't keep that one in line, well, how I mean, are they going to control the in Georgians? In some ways, I mean, in some ways, Lukashenko and Kadyrov share yeah. distinct characteristics, even how, however different they are. Um, in, the, in both cases, when the, their willingness to tow Moscow's line is directly proportional to what they get out of it. Mm. Um, and, and I think this is the thing, you know, obviously Lukashenko is a very different kind of player, I'm, 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 I'm glad to say, and I'm sure every Belarusian is. <laughs> um, but, but when it comes down to it, yeah, I mean, whenever Lukashenko talks about closer integration with the Russian space, it's because he thinks there's something he, he's going to get out yeah, of it. Yeah. And I think this, this is therefore the, the, the issue for the Russians. And whenever he expresses independence, it means he's not getting what he wants, yeah. and he wants to and make it's sure he, he wants the negotiation to up, process. Up, up the ante. We're in, we're in the bazaar. All right, on that, mo- on that note, we'll shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and come clean about the pitfalls and limitations of 
being a Kremlin Watcher today. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFURL. Joining me here in the studio is co-host Mark Eliade, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and author of the forthcoming book, The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes. You can read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at RFURL.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So, Mark, as we discussed in the first half, over the years we've gotten some things right and we've gotten some things wrong. We've both seen our level of access to real information dwindle over the years. These days, as they say, those who don't know, don't, those who talk don't know, and those who, uh, those, who, those who know don't talk, and those who talk don't know. Um, human intelligence, as we say, has dried up. There was a time when Kremlin insiders would talk to the likes of me. They may still talk to the likes of you. Um, and to, to, to a greater degree, certainly, they're talking to me, I don't know. Um, but our, our human intelligence sources have dried up. Um, we're relying increasingly on signals intelligence these days. Reading between the lines in the Russian media, scrutinizing posts on social media, poring over telegram channels known to link Kremlin dirt. Um, in some ways, it's, it's, it's kind of like back to the Kremlinology of old, but not entirely. We're in a different world than that of the Kremlinology of old. What are the pitfalls of being a Kremlin watcher today? How is it different from previous generations? How, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting parallel. I mean, obviously, sort of, you know, human hasn't dried up entirely, but again, we really you need to be kind of in country. You're getting secondhand. Um, and but it's also the fact of, I mean, it's worth mentioning that there is still, unlike the the, the high age of criminology, there, you know, there is still a lot of really effective independent media in Russia. Well, and that's when signals intelligence has gotten so much better. Yeah. I mean, you remember, like I do, looking over the, 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 the Russian press and trying to read between the lines in the 80s and, 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 and trying to figure out what the hell was really going but on. See, it's, now this it's, is the difference. I mean, it, it, it was a plus and a minus. Back in the day, you know, you could read exactly, you know, Pravda and Izvestia and Krasnaya Zvezda, and and there would obviously be differences in nuance, which tells you something about the differences between the Communist Party and the government and the army. But basically speaking, you know what you were getting was the official line. Mm-hmm. And yes, you sometimes had to guess, well, quite why is that? And is this implying that someone's in and someone's out? Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it was the official line. Now, precisely, as as you look through, you know, Telegram and you look at uh, Kadyrov's and Strelkov's Instagram right. feeds, uh, or what, actually, no, Str- uh, Strzokov tends to do Twitter. Um, you know, you don't know what is official so much, so easily. Right. If you look at Valery Solovoy's Facebook page, which is incredibly helpful mm-hmm. to read. I mean, there's a lot of things like there's a lot of points yeah. you can go to to get signs and signals. So I think one of the problems is, even more so than in, in high criminology, was that you can find whatever you want to look for. Mm-hmm. That is, for me, the biggest pitfall. Mm-hmm. You, you, you think you know what you're going to find, and you will be able to find data points to support that. Yeah, no, I mean, I can think of a recent case in which we still don't know if we were right about this or not, but we were talking about the you know, the creation of the Gos-Soviet and the creation of a special post, post-presidential post for Putin, whether it be something like a 
Ruski Ayatollah, Russian Ayatollah, as, as the Timchenko report claimed, or whether it's the recreation of the of the Soviet, the state council along a Chinese model, as various telegram channels known to leak good information were, were, were claiming months ago, which we which we we have been writing about. Um, and then Sharonovsky, you know, made public last last week very, uh, in his in the colorful way only he can do. We still don't know if that's right. We still we know yeah. that somebody's putting that out there. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But that's about it right now. Um, it smells right. Uh, it's one. It, if you look at Putin's options, it looks like a logical solution. But the fact of the matter is, we just don't know. And many Russians don't know. Again, I think this is this is a <laughs> many point insiders that exactly. Don't know. This is a point that you know the Russians themselves. And again, this is as it was in in ages criminolog- criminological sometimes. The Russians themselves would, would would be scouring that to try and see what what the, the new line was. Right. Well, likewise nowadays, you know, Russians are often given that the key element of of being a Russian official is to try and sort of predict what Putin wants, read mm. Putin's mind. So so they are looking for whatever sources they are, and they might well get it wrong. Mm-hmm. But then they might be thinking, well, I think I know what it is, mm-hmm. and therefore I'm going to talk in those terms. And then we say, oh, an official is is talking strongly about X, therefore they probably know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it could actually just simply be that we are all just simply piggybacking on each other. I mean, this is why when it comes down to it, I mean, yes, of course, we, we get things wrong. And, and the nature of publicly pontificating week in, week out on Russia... Is you're going to get things, get things wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, really, what you need to have is, is, is the right sweet spot balance between arrogance and intuition. <laughs> um, the arrogance to actually be able to think, well, I can't say that I know this. Right. But on the other hand, this is what I think is likely. And the intuition that whereas precisely you can take all these data points and try and think, well, actually put them together. And I think there is a pattern here. Mm-hmm. No, I, I would agree. I think we, we need a degree of epistemological modesty um, in, in, in this um, because it's becoming in a lot of ways increasingly inscrutable. On the other hand, there's never been more information available to us. But yet separating the signal from the noise mm-hmm. is, is really hard. Another, you know, coming clean on things we've gotten wrong. I mean, I thought in, you know, in the, in the first part of 2011 into the second part of 2011, even, even into the summer of 2011 when I should have been seeing the signals, but I was listening to the noise. I did think that Russia was moving in the direction of this kind of managed pluralism. I thought Medvedev had a good chance of staying in office for a second term. I thought Putin was leaning toward possibly doing the Deng Xiaoping option. And why did I think this? Because I was really paying attention to what Surkov was saying and his surrogates were saying. I was really paying attention to what Pavlovsky was saying and what his surrogates were saying. And when Pavlovsky got fired, that didn't even like you know raise an alarm bell with, with, with me because that should have been the first sign that the other side was winning this argument and that should have been obvious by the summer of 2011 when, that, when it was allegedly decided. And we know this now in mm-hmm. retrospect. It was decided in the summer of 2011. September 2011th should not come, has come, have come a surprise to me. It did come as a surprise to me. Um, I remember that, 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 that Saturday morning of the, of, the, of the Siezd of United Russia and, and I still was like, hmm, who is it going to be? And I thought at that point Putin was leaning towards maybe coming left, but I still thought there was a chance that it was going to go the other way. Totally got that one wrong. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that time period? And what I, I don't remember what you were writing and saying and thinking well, at the time. I mean, again, I mean, I, I think I, I was I was more skeptical about Medvedev once he had started to basically try and be president. <laughs> well, 
muscle in on 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 Putin's turf, which is, which is security affairs. Yeah. The point where we saw him on 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 the Kuril Islands, doing the kind of stomping around one army base to another and and sounding trying to sound like a a tough defender of of Russian national interests. Um, that's a point where I'm thinking, ooh, I think that's... The tipping point was the, gonna, was the vote on Libya. Sort of, the, the tipping yeah. point was the Security Council vote on Libya. But I think, um, you know, already at that point, it was it was too soon to actually try and... I mean, that, that was almost a signal that he's actually going to try and take Putin on, which you, one knew was, was, was going to get a response back. No, I mean, for me, it was interesting is um, in Crimea. When they first went into Crimea, I was thinking, surely not. Surely they're not going to try and annex this place. Now... There, I think it's because I was, I was, as it were, still working on the basis of a different Putin, mm-hmm. the pre-castling Putin, who talked tough uh, on on the you know, the rhetoric of nationalism, right. but was actually deeply pragmatic yeah. in his relation. And although we could see, you know, it was visible already by the Munich security speech in '07 that that he was shifting, but nonetheless, you know, I hadn't thought he'd shifted that, that far. Much, yeah. Now, after that. <clears throat> Once they did, you know, it's clear, okay, yes, they are going to take Crimea. Then, in a way, so much else actually slots together quite logically. Mm. Um, in, 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 in Once viewed in its own sort of uh, mental sphere of, 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 of sort of thinking, whether it's Donbass, whether it's Syria, right. and so forth. Um, but no, I think for me, that, that, that was the point where I was definitely behind the curve, where I, was, I didn't realize the extent to which we were dealing with a different Putin. See, I... I was surprised by the annexation of Crimea, but I didn't think it was totally out of the box. Um, and I remember an interview I did with Alexander Motil weeks before the annexation of Crimea. And he said, you know, if Russia wants to take Crimea, all they have to do is proclaim that we've taken it and there'd be no opposition. And he was he was right. So I thought that that could have been possibly pulled off relatively cost-free. What did surprise me was the intervention in Donbass. Because having lived in Ukraine... Um, knowing the Donbass and knowing the Russophone in Ukraine outside of Crimea, because Crimea is a different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, Crimea is a totally different animal than the rest of the, of, 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 of the Russophone Ukraine. It was utterly clear to me that the Donbass, and, partic- and, and not to mention southern southern Ukraine, you know, uh, Odessa, Mariupol, and play, was going to be a, a really really tough slog where they're going to run into opposition because people there are they're Russian speakers, but they're not pro Moscow. There, uh, and so I didn't, I didn't, I, I thought they'd have a, ru- a much rougher go at it in that place. Um, and what I didn't anticipate was the, 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 the surprising resilience of the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, I, I didn't expect that, to, that to happen. I think they surprised, surprised everybody, but yeah, this is, this is an, a, another one. So anything else you want to add while we're in the, while we're in the mode of, 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 of self, uh, what is self, self confessions here? Would... Well, I, sp- I suppose it's the, it's the usual point is that we are looking for big trajectories, grand strategies, um, in a realm which is still, to a large extent, dominated by opportunism and people stumbling from one policy, one half-assed notion to the other. And, and this is the funny thing. We know that our own political leaders are like that. We know just how incompetent they often are. We know how much they will chase a headline today mm-hmm. rather than a smart mm-hmm. idea in a week's time. And yet it's sometimes, I think, hard, because obviously in part it's because it's not a truly democratic system, but also because there is that element of inevitably thinking of the others. The other side is always 10 foot tall. Um, is I, I, I think we, we, we sometimes strive too hard to find a grand theme in what is actually just one more damn thing after another. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's a great note to wrap it up on. But after I sign off, I do have an announcement to make, so I want to give people fair warning now. But on that note, we will wrap up today's podcast. It's almost all we have time for today. We've got time for one more little thing. I'd like to remind you you've been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, author of the Power Vertical blog here at RFURL. And joining me here in the studio has been my longtime and brilliant co-host, Mark Galliotti, a senior research fellow at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and author of the forthcoming book that you all better buy, The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia. Uh, thanks for an enlightening discussion, Mark, and thanks for being such a terrific co-host. It's over, always over, been my over pleasure. Over the years, and now what everybody's been waiting for. What happens next with this podcast? As many of you probably know, but some of you may not, I have accepted a position as a senior fellow and director of the Russia program at the Center for European Policy Analysis in Washington, D.C., where I begin on the 1st of April. I'm very excited about that, albeit I'm very sad to be leaving RFE, where I've worked for 11 years and which has treated me very, very well. Um, the good news is that the Power Vertical podcast will continue. Thanks to RFRL's generosity, I will retain the Power Vertical brand name and take it with me to SEPA. There are plans in the works to have daily vertical style videos, a Power Vertical blog, and yes, a Power Vertical podcast. Keep your eye on my Facebook page and Twitter feed for information of that forthcoming. Also, keep an eye on the SEPA website. And Mark, I certainly hope we're going to be able to keep you involved in this in one capacity or another. We're talking about the details now, um, but more more to come. Uh, I honestly can't say any more. I feel like I'm having a press conference. And that's all I can say at this time, but that's about all I can say. So, um, And uh, you, I'll keep you posted on the Twitter feed and on the Facebook page, so keep an eye on my social media for further details. Um, once I get on the ground in Washington next week, I'll let you know more. And now, for the final time, I would also like to ex- sincerely thank my brilliant, patient, and ridiculously overworked... Listen, I'm getting all emotional here. I'd like to thank my brilliant, patient, and ridiculously overworked producer, Tanya Conchimer, for putting up with me all these years and for making this podcast much better product than it would be without her, and I truly mean that. I'd also like to thank my good friend and indispensable colleague, Pavel Butorin, managing editor of our Feral's Russian language television program, Current Time, which you can watch at www.currenttime.tv. And I'd also like to remind you, for one more day, you can read the Power Vertical blog and watch the Daily Vertical at rfl.org, and you can still subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes. We're working out the details of that as we speak. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And now, as always, I leave you with the ambient sounds of my favorite socially conscious Russian rapper, Noise MC. Noise MC.